All right, here we are back with our second week of this kind of ELI five series, this explain like I'm five series, little refresher. Um, you know, this kind of came out of some cryptocurrency knowledge, which led to some Reddit um, sub threads, this explain like I'm five. And last week we discussed the incarnation of Christ. Why did Jesus come to this earth? And this week I want to discuss um, about the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the question would be, how would you summarize the Sermon on the Mount? And we had Mr. Brian Deshaun kind of open this up and kick this off. And if you'd like to hear his words and kind of go back and hear what he had to say, I would recommend that you go to our Facebook page because you can see the live stream there. Um, obviously, I can't have Brian come and record this with me post gathering. But yeah, check check with our Facebook, facebook.com slash CCWGG. And there you can see Brian's thoughts and, and ideas. That being said, how would you summarize Jesus's Sermon on the Mount? A couple of thoughts as we get into it. The Sermon on the Mount occurs in Matthew 5 through 7. And there is kind of the cousin version is what I'd call it in Luke 6, 17 through 49. It's called the Sermon on the Plains. And leading up to, to, to the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew, there's a couple steps that, that happen. Matthew opens up with the genealogy, um, and then there's the birth of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus. Obviously, there's quite some time that happens between the birth and the baptism. The next section is I call the Badlands, where Jesus is taken out into the Badlands until the wilderness, and he's tempted there by Satan. Then there's kind of the beginnings of his ministry. Jesus calls his boys, his disciples, calls these guys to come follow him. And then heaven begins breaking open as Jesus begins to heal and do miracles and drive out demons. Um, and that's kind of the end of chapter four, which leads us to chapter five, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in the Bible, numbers are always super important. And anytime you're reading the Bible, you should pay attention to the numbers that are being listed or the way things are numbered. And let me say something here about some numbers. And I'm not convinced Matthew is specifically trying to convey any, anything here. But this was more of an observation that I made as I was kind of reading and engaging this text and some of the study around it. Leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus So leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks six times to four different people. First, he speaks to John the Baptist. Let it be so now it is proper for us to do this as he gets baptized. And then next, he speaks to Satan and he speaks to Satan three times, right, where he says it is written, man does not live by bread alone. It is written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Um, it is written again, he says. And then he begins to preach, right? He, he's speaking to a group of people, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he speaks to his disciples, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So when Jesus opens his mouth again, right, we are at his seventh word, seven symbolizing perfection, completion to his fifth person or group. Fifth, the number five would signify God's grace, God's goodness, God's favor toward humanity. Again, maybe an observation as we begin this Sermon on the Mount, right? God's grace, God's goodness, God's favor towards humans has been made complete, has been made 
perfect. Um, there is some scholarly debate about this. Some say that this is one particular teaching, right, on one occasion, right? And, and maybe you could think about this if you went to see, uh, have a weekend seminar to learn from, from some particular teacher or, or guru or, or master or whatever, and you were to still that whole weekend or that whole conference of teaching into a smaller distillation. Some people think of it, some scholars think of it in that way. And others say that it's a compilation of numerous teachings, almost kind of a greatest hits album where they took all of Jesus's great teachings and kind of combined them, compressed them here into the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plains, as Luke mentions it. So how would you summarize this Jesus's Sermon on the Mount? How would you summarize that? If I were to take a swing at that ELI five question, how would I summarize Jesus's Sermon on the Mount? My answer to that would be, it's all about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, right? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Uh, when I did this online, and, and you'd probably have to, again, go to our Facebook to, to, to be able to see this, um, I kind of drew out an umbrella to summarize this, right? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is the pinnacle. It's the point. It's the focus. So imagine you took an umbrella handle and there at the very top, I wrote the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's the point. That's the focus. That's what it all is about. His whole sermon is about his kingdom. Again, remember the summary of all of Jesus's life. King Jesus. Now, how do we get to this kingdom of God? How, how does everything point to that? How does this sermon point to that? And so what I did is I, I drew what's called the ribs of the umbrella, you know, the metal framing that kind of supports the umbrella canopy. So each rib, I drew four different ribs. And the first one I talk about King Jesus's inaugural address, his royal decree, right? It is a royal decree about the reality of the kingdom. Um, most of you know that I have three small young children, four, six, and 10, and I have inevitably, inevitably been sucked in by the Disney princess industrial complex. And while there is really no escaping this as a father, I have furiously avoided using Disney princess analogies in my sermons for about the last 10 years. That being said, <laughs> I got to use one here because I want to ask you, who is the most classic Disney princess, the most famous of all, right? It's Cinderella. And, and the film Cinderella and all its versions and variations and all the books that I've read and all the Cinderella this and that that I've experienced and dress ups and playing with my kids, right? The whole film, the whole story is based on two decrees. The first decree is the king says that we are going to have a party to find a wife for my son, right? The second decree is that we are going to have a search party to find that wife for my son, right? And that's the whole film, right? That's the whole movie. But the decrees are binding to the entire kingdom, right? Every young lady is to attend the ball. Every house is to be searched for this girl and the slipper is to be tried on by every maiden that's available. And when the king speaks, what he wants done is done. 
right? So when Jesus goes up onto the side of a mountain and gives his, I love how Dale Bruner called it in his commentary. He called it his state of the universe. When he gives his state of the universe, he is declaring, he is decreeing the reality of his kingdom. Those who live under the rule and reign of Christ must live in this manner, right? Must live under the rule and reign of Christ. Which leads us to our second one here, is that we are given a portrait of disciples and we are given words to form disciples, right? Um, We are given descriptions of disciples and we are given um, we are given words that create disciples. So description and creation here. Um, Bruner says this again in his commentary. I just think that this is just so so breathtaking. Um, Bruner says that Jesus's words, when Jesus opens his mouth, when he speaks, they're not just human words. Well, we know that. But listen how far he goes with this. Um, they are the divine word. And such, they are alive with enabling power. The words of the Sermon on the Mount breathe resurrection. Martin Luther spoke of it in this way. The word possesses so much power that wherever seriously considered, heated, and put into practice, that it never remains barren of its fruit. It always awakens new thoughts, new pleasures, new devotions, and cleanses the heart and its meditations. To read the Sermon on the Mount is to discover what it means to be Jesus' disciples. To read it with faith is to receive power to be Jesus' disciples. So, end of quote. Bruner says that when you are reading the Sermon on the Mount, right, these are enabling words. They are words that possess power. That as you read them with faith, it actually creates and changes and builds and establishes you as a disciple. Um, number three, this kind of number three ribbon or rib on the umbrella. Jesus is embodying the law. He is fulfilling it. In Matthew five seventeen and 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Remember, there were 613 Jewish Old Testament laws, and each law had their own commentary, interpretation, understanding, perspective. Um, And when Jesus says that he's come to fulfill it, right, he's come to embody them, right, The idea here is what we talked about last week is that Jesus isn't coming to hand us the California driving handbook or the California vehicle code and saying, here, this should be all you need to drive a car in today's society, right? That's not very helpful if you were to give that to a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old. At one point, parents will need to embody, you will need to sit in the car with your child, right? And be with them as they learn to drive. And when Jesus says that he's come to embody the law, he doesn't come and say, hey, um, by the way, here's the 613 laws. Know them, study them, understand them, 
everything there's going to be, you know, and then good luck in the world. He says, I will come and I will show you. And from here on out, we actually get to watch Jesus live out his sermon. The last rib I want to talk about um, is that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount answers two big questions, right? What is the good life and who is truly a good person? Dallas Willard in his book kind of breaks the Sermon on the Mount um, down at this fault line from Matthew 5, 3 through 20, right? What is the good life? And then from Matthew 5, 21 through 7, 27, who is a truly good person, right? So that first question, what is a good life? When Jesus talks about the Beatitudes, right, he's defining who is really blessed in life, right? Who is really well off? Is it the rich, the powerful, those with large social media followings, parents with kids in Ivy Leagues, the intellectuals? Jesus upends the tables and turns what we all think is right side up in our world and turns it upside down. And we really discover that that's right upside, that, that that is really the right side up. And Jesus says that if you're hurting, if you're mourning, that those who are meek, that those who are merciful, that those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that those who are have a poverty of spirit, right? All of those people, as we see them, are the ones who are well off, who are living the good life, who have the blessing and the divine favor of God. And then the second question is who truly is a good person? Um, one of the more, I guess, kind of controversial or, or not spoken of as much uh, due to the to the kind of blinding nature of the, the judge not section in, in chapter seven is all the ethical moral nature of Jesus' teaching here in 521 through 727. All of these things are about ethics and about morality, right? How a truly good person will be. Imagine you had a friend who, this friend that as you've known him, you knew him since they were a child and as you've grown up with them, they become increasingly angry all the time. They're maybe lusting towards the opposite sex or always checking out the opposite sex, making sexual references towards that person. Maybe they've been through a couple marriages. They speak out of both sides of their mouth. You never know if they're being truthful or, or if, they're, if they're lying to you or, or leading you on. When people wrong them, they're unforgiving and vengeful. They're greedy. They're always trying to make more money or complaining that they don't have enough. They're pretentious. They're anxious. Like we call these people toxic individuals from who we either need to get away from or stay away from. Or maybe there's some sort of a calling in our life from the spirit to engage them so that the gospel can change their lives and work in their lives. Right. What happens is we get distracted by chapters seven, one through six, where Jesus says, don't judge or you'll be judged. And we forget that the, the bulk of the sermon is based on judging people's actions, their behavior, their morality, specifically those who call themselves disciples of Jesus. Right. Not judging isn't the whole of the sermon. It's an aspect of the sermon. Right. And we have to understand that this is just a reference. And Jesus gives us an outline. He gives us a pattern. He shows us what a good person looks like. 
Someone who's not angry all the time, right? Somebody who isn't lusting towards the opposite sex. Somebody who's faithful to their spouse if they're married. Somebody who keeps their word. Somebody who is forgiving and is not seeking revenge. Who's generous. Who's uh, at peace in this world. Who isn't anxious. Who isn't worried, right? Those are the type of people those are the good people that Jesus is describing. And then Jesus concludes with fruit trees because it, he says that you're able to look at a tree, you're able to look at a person and judge or deduce and see what kind of fruit they are producing. And he's showing us that the good life and the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, right? That this good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. So let me end here with this, a little bit of kind of so what kind of application as we think about, you know, a very broad view of the Sermon on the Mount. So what? What could be some application steps on this? Um, one thing I might say is that uh, an application might be for you to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. And you say, whoa, Eric, well, that's, that's kind of a big step. Yeah, I know that. I know that's a big step. One of the things, I think I've said this before in, in different sermons, one of the things that I've kind of personally taken on the challenge is um, I want to know Jesus inside. I want to know Jesus inside and out. Um, and part of that is to memorize the entire Gospel of Mark. And I'm just about finished with chapter 11, moving into chapter 12 of memorizing this entire Gospel. So a few chapters is not that far of a reach for anyone to just memorize, right? Um, and maybe God's calling you to memorize that as not only a description of what a disciple looks like, but again, these words are enabling words that then, as you have them in you, that they would begin to change you, right? Or maybe if memorizing is a bridge too far for you, maybe the second idea here would be to create a pattern for repeated reading. Jesus, I want to read this through maybe a chapter, maybe chapter five, one week, chapter six, one week, chapter seven, one week, and you just repeat that again and again and again. Um, maybe you want to read the whole thing in one sitting once a month and just allow the words of Jesus to repeat over you. Or maybe you want to repeat it in 12 different versions, and maybe the message or the Passion Translation or the Good News Translation or the King James Version or the ESV, and you just want to read it in different versions and, and kind of journal about it. Um, so maybe you want to create a pattern for repeated reading. Another maybe application step or kind of a so what is to begin to study this as if to know it, right? As if you were taking a test on the Sermon on the Mount, you would want to know that material. When I was in college, one of the ways that I would know that I knew the material, right, that I would know that I would know the material is if I was able to kind of somehow be able to watch TV and still, um, you know, sometimes it, the professor would give out that study guide and you'd have to understand or know the questions from that study guide. If I was able to answer those questions for the study guide while being distracted by the TV, that's when I knew that I was ready for the test. And so you begin to study as to know it. You begin to pick up commentaries, read about it, understand it. Um, and you want to have that deep in your heart. And then the last thing, I would say, too, this kind of so what, this kind of application step. Uh, allow others to ask Sermon of the Mount questions of you, right? 
take the Sermon of the Mount, phrase them in questions, and allow people to ask that about your life. For example, do you encounter me to be angry often? Right? Do you encounter me to be angry often? Am I meek, merciful, peacemaking? Do I keep my word? Can you trust me when I say something? Do you think I'm a generous person? Do you encounter me as a person of prayer? Do you see that prayer is a priority in my life? And you ask people, you give people in your life permission to ask you those questions. Um, and listen, wherever you're listening and whoever you are, I'll do that for you if you want it. If that's something that you would want or need, I would do that for you. Um, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sits down. And the crowds are amazed at his teaching. Remember, Jesus teaches as a king with authority, not as a teacher of the law. The king, King Jesus, has authority, giving his decrees that point to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven. Um, Jesus is, as he's teaching, he's giving us authority on what a disciple looks like and giving us words to create disciples, right? pointing to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is embodying the law, fulfilling it, pointing to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven. And lastly, Jesus is showing us what a good life and a good person looks like living in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven. Again, I hope this sermon has at some level spoke to you, has blessed you, has um, allowed God to speak through me to you. May you be filled with his spirit. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, again, wherever my folks, my brothers and sisters, these people might be listening, might be engaging this. Um, yeah, um, give them something really challenging in their heart that they could work towards, not just to encounter this Sermon on the Mount in a cavalier manner, in a way that, um, yeah, we just kind of read it again as if we're picking up a magazine or, or scrolling through a website. Jesus, you're giving us your kingdom words with divine enabling resurrection power to change us and create us and to show us the way to live in your kingdom. Be with us today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.